Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today we're talking about Marxists after Marx. We're talking about all of the conflicts and splits and difficulties which plagued Marxism after Marx, but before the Frankfurt School. So mainly end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries, finishing up before the 30s, before Hitler. And during this period, we of course get the Russian Revolution. We get reactions to that revolution and the big question in and around World War I of whether what's going on in Russia is conducive to something bigger in other places uh, or whether it's not. And if you want the revolution in Russia to spread in other, uh, to other places, how would you go about effecting that spread? Now, as you might recall from our Marx episode, we talked a lot about the theory of history and this idea that capitalism is a stage and that capitalism reaches a point where the way people are organized under capitalism in employer-employee relationships no longer produces uh, economic growth, no longer produces stability in social relations, has become inconsistent with uh, continuing to develop the forces of production and maintaining a social structure which is sufficiently stable to support ordinary people's lives, right? The idea that you get to the end of a stage of production, and when you're at the end, there's fettering, the productive forces are no longer developing, and as a consequence of this, there's social problems, social malaise. As we move into the period after Marx, Everybody kind of wants the period, the period they're living in to be the moment when capitalism finally runs out of steam and comes to an end. And Lenin in Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, he argues that what's, what's happened, uh, borrowing from Hobson, uh, and uh, a theorist, a liberal theorist from this period, Hobson makes the argument that economic growth has been possible for the Western states, because they've engaged in imperialism and colonialism, and by going around the world and taking over all of these different markets, they've been able to continue to find places to sell their goods, even though their own workers aren't making enough money to be able to support those domestic markets on their own. And Hobson argues, well, we can fix this problem because if we do redistributive measures, uh, then it would be possible for people in the domestic markets to support those markets. And that would mean that we wouldn't have to continue to add more and more colonies and do more and more imperialism. Lenin goes, well, of course, the bourgeois state is never going to do that kind of redistribution. So, of course, the bourgeois state will just have to continue accumulating colonies. And the world is only so big. So eventually, they're going to run out of colonies to accumulate, which means they're going to run out of markets they can accumulate without fighting each other for control of the markets. So Lenin argues that this imperial competition for markets will eventually produce a huge war. And that huge war will, of course, 
involve a lot of destruction. It won't be facilitating at that point the continued development of capitalism. It will be getting in the way. And it won't be facilitating at that point any kind of uh, stable way of making a living or surviving because the ordinary workers will be drafted into the military and killed on battlefields in large numbers. So Lenin goes, aha, in the, in this big war, which is the consequence of capitalism, this is the end of capitalism where it should become obvious to everybody that it's not working, that it's produced this horrible war that's getting everybody killed. And this is the moment when the workers should all, all together rise up, refuse to fight in the armies and uh, form, form socialist polities. Now, of course, it doesn't happen everywhere. And the question then becomes, well, why isn't it happening everywhere? And what do we do about that? One principal reason it doesn't happen everywhere is that, in point of fact, the workers seem to be much more committed to their nationalist projects than they are to this global class solidarity. And so many of the workers are willing to shoot workers from their neighboring European states. And that catches some Marxists from this period off guard. Another thing that happens is that uh, you get these self-determination movements spinning out of World War I with populations in lots of different parts of Europe and the Mediterranean becoming convinced that they're nations and that they ought to have uh, nation states of their own. And that becomes a motivator for them to participate in the war and a motivator for them to be potentially loyal to, to some states in the interest of destroying other states. So lots of, of questions then about what's going to happen. And the attempt to export the revolution to Germany doesn't come off. There is, of course, the Spartacist uprising, but that uprising is crushed. And so as we begin to move into the 20s, the question becomes, uh, is revolution something that can still happen? And you get Marxists who are called, you know, sometimes called revisionists like Edward Bernstein, arguing that ah, maybe, maybe the theory has misunderstood the way capitalism works and maybe something um, compatible with liberal democracy needs to be done, right? Now, when Bernstein makes that kind of argument, he immediately gets a lot of pushback from all the other Marxists of this period because they think that if you collaborate with bourgeois democracy, you won't be able to get a revolution, won't be able to get socialism, and instead you'll just begin placating the masses by giving them scraps from the table of capitalism, and that that will keep those masses on board and prevent them from doing revolution. Now, Bernstein goes, well, it doesn't seem like revolution is going to happen in the way that you expect it to happen, so we might as well get something for these people. But Compared to what Marxists are hoping you'll get with socialism, the scraps from the table that Bernstein is getting in this very early period before you know, Keynesianism and the New Deal and the welfare state, uh, not, not very attractive scraps to most Marxists from this period. At the same time, people look at what is happening with Lenin and with the revolution in the Soviet Union, and there's unease about that because it's become very militarized, very authoritarian in part because we get a Russian civil war and a Red Army to fight in that civil war and therefore a military structure 
to the army, to the party, to the whole movement coming out of the Soviet Union, and deep concerns that that's not compatible with Western conceptions of freedom, right? Hmm. These are some of the big questions that are percolating in this period. And we'll talk a little bit about Kotsky, a little bit about Luxembourg, some of the responses to these conditions. Hmm. Um, but I, I think what we'll find as we talk about this is that nobody really figured it out. Hmm. Everybody was noticing that things were going wrong and that it wasn't working out as intended. And many of the theorists of this period could point out reasons why different approaches wouldn't work or weren't working. But they struggled to come up with something that would work. And that's, in large part, why nothing did work. Mm. And a lot of people, if you talk to contemporary Marxists, contemporary socialists, they look back on this period and everybody's got their, their favorite. Their theorists that they go, well, if only this theorist had been able to win all the arguments, then it would have all worked out differently. But I, mm -hmm. I think that the conditions were just not as favorable during that period as a lot of people would like them to be uh, for the kind of project politically that people were talking about. And a lot of this comes down to the kinds of institutions which are associated with the different options. So at the extremes, you have the social democracy of Bernstein where mm. you are running in elections and therefore you are constrained by what is electorally feasible. So if you try to do stuff which is considered very, very radical and very disruptive and changes things very rapidly, then there will probably be some kind of electoral reaction to that. And a straightforward example in contemporary context, if you try very quickly to uh, nationalize industry or cut trade with, with states. There's disruptions to supply chains, disruptions to um, what's being economically produced. Those disruptions often lead to price rises, to inflation, uh, or to periods of unemployment or transition when you're changing the way an industry works, uh, or trying to shrink a bloated sector as a percentage of GDP, whatever you're trying to change very quickly, there's usually some group of people whose lives are disrupted by that change. And those people tend to be reluctant to continue to support the party electorally. So you can even see this uh, even with some of the big changes which did occur in later on in the interwar and postwar era. Uh, the Attlee government in Britain, it's able to create the NHS, but having created the NHS, it then struggles to continue to sustain popular support in part because the changes that it's making are so big and so massive that it's socially destabilizing. And often electorally, people respond to that instability by running back to people who will not change things so much. So it's difficult to do socialism through elections because you might get one, one big thing done, but that one big thing will often produce an impulse in the electorate to return to a calm. Uh, or will even kick up additional resistance that there might not have been at the beginning because of the scale of the disruption. Now, despite that, the 
democratic tr uh, socialist tradition has come up with all kinds of ways of trying to work around this, most notably later on, you know, non-reformist reforms. The idea that you can do a reform which is designed not just to help people in the present moment, but to institutionally unlock possibilities for further reform uh, and to pay attention to how these reforms fit into some kind of long-term story. But that gradualist approach uh, or Fabian approach, as it was called in, uh, in Britain under the Fabian Society, uh, that approach, if it's going to get you stuff, it's going to be very piecemeal. It's going to be very slow. And if you want a socialist system, if you're trying to get a system that is altogether different, it, it still seems very hard to envision how you would get there from here in a democratic system where periodically the left-wing parties are going to lose elections to right-wing parties. Hmm. At the other end of the spectrum, you have Lenin and the heavily militarized Russian Revolution. And the issue with revolution in general is that at some point in a revolution, you get the involvement of the military, even if you try to do it peacefully. Let's say you try to do some kind of color revolution. You uh, just have a general strike. You aren't trying to use violence. But eventually what's going to happen, if people are not going to work, eventually the government is going to order the military to put an end to the general strike. Now, when that happens, either the military will try to put an end to the general strike, in which case you'd have to resist the military or the general strike will end or the military will refuse to crush the general strike. Now, if the military refuses to crush the general strike, then from the point of view of the government, the military is mutinous, right? So once the, if the military is going to mutiny against the government, if it's going to commit treason effectively, then the military is going to have to defend itself from the government, which is going to want to punish it for being mutinous and committing treason. So that means that once the military refuses to crush the general strike, the military then becomes the revolution because the military is then having to protect itself from a government which wants to punish it for refusing to obey orders. Hmm. And the military is petrified of what might happen to it in that scenario. All of the soldiers who don't participate in crushing the strike are petrified of what happens if they lose. So once they come over to the revolutionaries, they must do everything that they can to stay alive. And that means you know, the military has whatever commitments the original revolutionary movement has to nonviolence or to doing things peacefully. The military is likely to violate all of those rules and bounds because once the military refutes, refuses to shoot the, the strikers, the military is in big trouble, right? Now, if the whole military comes over all at once, maybe you can imagine some idyllic scenario where it's obvious to the government that it can't stay in power and it gives up, right? And occasionally you have, in more contemporary context, color revolutions that feel a bit like that. But because a socialist revolution is challenging the material interests of the bourgeoisie, it's not just trying to overthrow one particular government or one particular leader who has been a little bit excessively authoritarian. Mm. 
Hmm. or maybe a lot of bit excessively authoritarian, because it's trying to change the whole social structure and the whole economic system, it's very unlikely that the government is going to roll over in the way that it might do if, say, everybody in the elite was kind of sick of the president because he's a bit of a raving monster, and everybody in the elite wants to get rid of the president anyway. Hmm. And indeed, if it's too easy to expel the government, that probably suggests that the elite in the country believe that they can use the revolution to accomplish their own political purposes, right? Mm. If the elite turns on the leader such that there's no meaningful opposition to removing the leader, then probably that revolution isn't going to produce a transformation in the economic system. So to get a revolution which actually produces a transformation, there will probably be some split in the military because some people in the military will refuse to crush the strike, but others will want to continue to receive pay and support from the elite. Hmm. And that means some level of fighting. And once fighting happens, then the whole political situation is dictated by the needs of the army and the needs of the military situation. And that leads to a warlike command economy. So it also reduces the scope for what socialism can look like economically. So in the case mm. of the Russian Revolution, it's thoroughgoingly militarized by the experience of having to fight the Russian Civil War. And once you get to the end of that, there is a party structure which is heavily authoritarian, heavily, heavily hierarchical. It's used to running an army, and it's now trying to run the economy like it's running an army. Mm. And that, of course, leads to all sorts of economic trouble in the Soviet Union, and it causes a lot of Western Marxists to go, eh, I don't know about this, especially once they find out about what's going on. You have some mm. Western Marxists who are more sympathetic to the Soviet project for a while, but once it becomes more common knowledge just how much violence and how much suppression is occurring in the Soviet Union, more and more Marxists are going to argue for, let's do something else. Let's do something differently. Let's not just copy what Lenin is doing. Mm. Of course, in practice, once you make that move, you tend to slide toward the Bernstein position of supporting various different kinds of electoral political movements. Yeah, yeah. And then you face the limitations that come from competing in elections, dealing with elections, dealing with the fact that rich people can finance the opposition in elections and will continue to finance opposition the whole time that any socialist government is in power and will step up mm. the amount of money that they spend on the opposition the more you try to do transformational things. Mm. Right? So it's, it's a, a rock and a hard place. The rock being electoralism and the hard place being the militarized revolution. And the theorists of the early 20th century who try to split it, they do a good job of recognizing the problems with both approaches, but their way of trying to find a golden mean doesn't really work. So a, a great yeah. example of this is Rosa Luxemburg, right? Rosa Luxemburg is unwilling to support World War I, unwilling to stay in the SPD, uh, begins to feel that the SPD is becoming uh, too, too committed to the German national project and that that nationalism is incompatible with an international socialist movement that activates workers all over the world, right? So a, a sound and interesting critique 
of the electoral approach. At the same time, she also is critical of the authoritarian Leninist militarized operation that's emerging mm -hmm. in the Soviet Union. She wants something which is less hierarchical and command-oriented than that, but she also wants something that is distinctly revolutionary and not just about making nice with the bourgeois nation-state. Mm -hmm. So she ends up arguing for a kind of spontaneous revolution, which doesn't have the organizational rigidity of Leninism, but which also is distinctly a kind of revolutionary politics. Hmm. Now, the problem with spontaneity is spontaneity presumes that the conditions are going to fall into place where you're going to get this behavior. And what is it that you're spontaneously supposed to get? It's a general strike. Well, even if you get a spontaneous general strike, which isn't organized by a heavily militarized operation that's looking to turn it into a military thing, think about the logic of the general strike. Eventually, the military will be ordered to get involved with a general strike. And at that point, even if you've done it through this spontaneous approach and you haven't used this highly uh, hierarchical apparatus, because the military will then get involved, you will then have a heavily hierarchical apparatus coming in and taking over the revolutionary movement. And if you have a spontaneous general strike with no organization, how are you supposed to resist any effort by the military to completely take over that revolutionary movement? Mm -hmm. And to completely shape the way it's structured and the way that it's conducted. Yeah. So I think that Luxembourg's attempt to avoid both of the two still ends up in practice resulting in a strategy which, if it were to work, would produce Leninism. And if it doesn't work, it produces the democratic approach. Because if you can't get mm -hmm. a general strike through spontaneity. If you would need organization to get it, then waiting for the spontaneous general strike is akin to just remaining committed to the bourgeois nation state. Hmm. Uh, and if you do get that, that general strike, the military will then get involved and then it will start to take on a more Leninist flavor. So you hmm. see how you're kind of stuck there. You don't have a very easy way out. Now, yeah. Korsh is another interesting person who tries to, to mix it. He goes, well, let's have uh, syndicalism as a kind of mediating local structure to interface between the uh, revolutionary party and the ordinary people. Yeah. A bit like Hegel's civil societal institutions that mediate between the individual yes. and the collective. Yes. But in this case, mediating between the workers and the party. Right. Exactly. Let's have some civil society orgs. Well, the, the question then is, how do you get civil society orgs? Because with the revolutionary approach, you tend to get this militarized party, which is not very interested in creating civil society orgs, which would weaken its own position after it has power. Right? Hmm. So more recently, Leia Yippie has written a bit about this problem of having, on the one hand, authoritarian parties that are able to execute a revolution. But once they've executed a revolution, it's not in the interests of the people commanding the party to give up power or to distribute it more broadly within the society because mm -hmm. they have accumulated so much power through being military leaders, right? So once that revolution happens, it's very unlikely that the kind of party which can stage that kind of revolution successfully will then create things like syndicates, right? 
At the other end of the spectrum, a party which would never engage in that kind of centralization and which is acutely aware of the dangers of that kind of power centralization is also unlikely to have the level of organization necessary to prevail given the level of organization of the capitalists who have all the money and use that money to create very effective firm-type organizations to compete against socialist outfits. So, Leah, your piece suggests a kind of paradox here where on the one hand you have parties that understand the dangers of having a militarized party, but because of this can't do anything revolutionary, and parties on the other hand which are so are committed to the revolution, but at, at the cost of not being able to produce a structure which is yeah. strong and durable after the fact. So you if have on the, the one hand institutions. Balance. Right. If only you could find a golden mean and balance, right? On the one mm. hand, you end up with parties uh, with, with uh, people who are constrained by democracy. On the other hand, you have people who are constrained by the military. And so oftentimes when people are having this revolution reform argument, they focus only on the constraints of the opposite model. And there's an implicit assumption that you know, if you are a partisan of, of electoral democracy, that electoral democracy can somehow work through its limitations. But if you do a revolution, you'll end up with an awful dictatorship like, like the Soviet Union. On the other hand, side, you have the revolutionaries who go, well, somehow you can organize a revolution such that it's good. But if you do democracy, well, then you'll be completely limited by all of the limitations of democracy and you won't get anywhere. Right? The truth of the matter is that any set of political institutions you adopt are going to greatly limit what's possible. And any attempt to get out of very quickly and rapidly your existing set of political institutions requires a kind of movement which is at least as limiting as your original institutions. The military and democracy are both limiting sets of institutions. and there isn't a clear way, at least in the period that we're talking about, of avoiding both of those sets of limitations. So it becomes a question of which set of limitations do you prefer to live with, right? Now, Marxism, because it's about revolution and transforming society, does not want to make nice with that reality during this period. It does not want to make nice with the reality that either you're going to have to deal with the limitations of a heavily militarized command society, or you're going to have to deal with the limitations of a bourgeois electoral system, which is constantly penetrated by rich people's money. Hmm. It's not, not a very happy situation to be in. Yeah. And this rests in the economic conditions of the time, because one of the reasons why the attempt to do socialism in Russia led to Bolshevik dictatorship was that there was this division between workers and peasants. The exploited classes lacked material unity, which created the need in order to accomplish any kind of revolution to heavily centralise political power. Whereas in Western states, where there was a, a, and to some extent still is, a working class with some degree of economic unity, um, especially with the uh, rise of trade unions in the uh, late 19th and then in the, in the 20th centuries, the need for a political unity to unite the working class was less. So 
you got stuck at the time between supporting, uh, if you were on the left, either the Bolshevik position of an extreme political unity to manage the uh, economic disunity of the classes in early capitalist uh, conditions, such as in Tsarist Russia, or, or in the bourgeois left reformist position of the West, where you had economic unity of the working class, but therefore less of an incentive to create political unity. And so you got stuck between extreme organization or uh, extreme spontaneity and extreme organization can lead to dictatorship and extreme spontaneity can lead to total ineffectiveness and therefore just the maintenance of the status quo. And in the end, it was the fact that these economic conditions were so polarized that undermined the possibility of any political project having traction that could avoid either of these extremes. Yeah, this is a great point. So when you're when you're operating in a context where you have a lot of peasants or you have uh, very little union presence, because there's no organization in, in civil society of workers as a class, no real class organization to speak of, it all gets done through the party. And the party becomes much, much more central to the movement because there aren't other organizations that can, that can do any of the work, right? Mm. Now, this, of course, leads a lot of Western Marxists to go, well, because in the West we have trade unions and because in the West we have more civil society organizations, that means that in the West it should be possible to do it without the centralized party. Hmm. <laughs> Or with a, a yeah. lesser lesser degree of centralization, right? Now the thing the, the thing is, there are still distinctive political advantages to having political centralization. There are disadvantages, but there are also distinctive ad advantages. And one of these is that in the Western context, because you don't have this level of political centralization, oftentimes these different layers of more localized or more economic organizations will fight with each other. They'll infight. They get into contests with each other for power. Internally, they are stricken by their own local small town divisions. And so in Western Marxism, you get huge, huge amounts of spiraling infighting, spiraling infighting all the time, all the time. And because the workers have some level of local organization, the local organization becomes a way of fobbing people off a little bit. In Western contexts, the ability to participate in a local civil society organization, like a trade union, it gives you a sense of community. It gives you other people to debate with, hang out with, talk to. This, these things have a calming effect on people, even if they're Marxist revolutionary organizations. The fact that you can go participate in an organization and talk to people and go to marches and protests and go out and vote and organize elect election campaigns, all of these things keep Western Marxist organizations busy with stuff that feels political but never quite amounts to revolution. That's not to say that the political struggles of those movements didn't accomplish anything or didn't matter. I think that they accomplished a lot more than many of the critics of those movements uh, suggest. But there's a cap on how 
far that's likely to go on where it can go. And that stems mm. from the fact that you know, civil society organizations are emphasized by Hegel because they help with legitimacy and stability, right? So mm. if you have a society that's full of civil society organizations, that society is going to be less revolutionary because it's mm. full of precisely the kinds of things that calm people down, make people feel part of communities and make people feel like they have something worth defending. Yeah, yeah. Right? And it creates when a you're a peasant, yeah. When you're a peasant in a total war situation in Russia, you have nothing to lose. <laughs> you really have nothing mm. to lose. If your village has been mauled by all of these different armies and, and every, you know, so many people around you are dead, you just don't have anything like as much to lose. And there's no organization to speak of apart from these destroyed old village communities. Yeah, yeah. Because when the exploited classes are too divided, you need a lot of centralization to channel any oppositional energy towards the system of exploitation. But if the exploited classes are very unified, then uh, that superficially looks an attractive option but there's such a low incentive in that kind of climate for building an organization that could channel any oppositional energy. And indeed, there might not be much oppositional energy at all um, if, say, it's the 50s and 60s and growth rates are fairly high and uh, trade unions seem to be uh, doing a good job in mediating between uh, workers and the capitalist state and keeping uh, keeping things okay. Uh, and so we oscillate between these extremes of uh, lots of opposition to the status quo, uh, which doesn't necessarily lead anywhere if there isn't an organization there, um, and conditions where uh, there isn't much opposition to the status quo, um, when the status quo is kind of balanced to those concerns. But that seems to be a time that's fading. It seems likely that the uh, the liberal nostalgia for the growth rates of the 50s and 60s uh, seems to be just a, just a nostalgia because it doesn't seem that those conditions can return. But neither, neither is it clear that, uh, say, a return to... 1920s conditions would lead to anything better because as we saw in the 1920s, it's by no means guaranteed that a considerable degree of uh, conflict and upset and disorder will lead to something better. It could just lead to something worse. And it should be emphasized that there was a huge amount of misery and suffering in the yeah. period during and around World War One, a huge price to be paid for any political opportunity to change the kinds of states that existed in Europe during that time. And a number of states yeah. did change, uh, but those changes were by no means straightforwardly beneficial to the people who lived in those places, not just in the, in the Soviet Union, uh, but if you look at the breakup of Austria-Hungary, if you look at the breakup of the Ottoman Empire, the states which replaced these states 
had a lot of issues. Now, that's not to say that nothing was accomplished by any of these governments. The Soviet Union certainly built a healthcare system that was much, much better than Tsarist Russia's. Uh, but it, uh, these states didn't have great durability. Uh, in the case of the states that were created out of Austria-Hungary and the Ottoman Empire, they were very vulnerable to imperialism, very vulnerable to Western um, colonial pressure because they were small, weak states that couldn't stick up for themselves uh, in the international market or on the world stage very effectively. And of course, the Soviet Union, it collapsed. And when it collapsed, that produced another set of weak states, easy to, to mess with and, and pick on. Uh, and a Russian state, which is committed to oil and gas and uh, dependent on oil and gas for its survival as a functioning polity and threatened constantly by the possibility that one day Vladimir Putin will be gone and there's no obvious political future after that point. So... I, I, there was a lot of suffering, and the stuff that was tried during the period did not work. It did not work, mm. uh, despite some partial successes in some areas. You know, again, healthcare in the Soviet Union, a lot of scientific research in the Soviet Union. It's not like it was all uh, unremittingly terrible the way that right uh, right wing propagandists would have it, but certainly not successful. Because if the state collapses, if it doesn't survive. And that leads to more instability, more suffering, and the fact that the state can't survive, the fact that it became so dependent on authoritarianism that it didn't have any dynamism to it, that it couldn't change its policies in meaningful or substantive ways without undermining the legitimacy of the whole state. Right, right, yeah. Uh, that level of rigidity politically is not compatible with any kind of success in the long term. And I, I yeah. do think that that is something that people should pay attention to with one-party states. When you've got a one-party state, conflict in the one-party state has to occur behind the scenes because it's not possible to have open dissent in a one-party state without potentially leading to a split in the party. So mm -hmm. in a one-party state, dissent is driven underground. It's not openly expressed, which means no one knows how much there is which means all of a sudden it can explode in your face. And that makes the government paranoid about dissent, and it causes the government to do a lot of purging and suppression. When the government doesn't do a lot of purging and suppression, it falls victim to conspiracies from inside the party. Mm. Uh, so the government is, ends up stuck because it has no information. It doesn't know anything about the strength of its opposition, and there are no elections. There's nothing to periodically enable any kind of peaceful transition. The government lives afraid of its own party, and it is constantly oscillating between purging too much and therefore getting rid of people who have skill and talent and new ideas, and purging too little and then being vic the victim of, of coups and, uh, and plots. So if you look at what ends up happening in the Soviet Union with Stalin, Stalin quite rightly recognizes that there are probably all sorts of Western plants in the Soviet Union and in the Red Army and in the party. There's probably all sorts of people who are secretly capitalist and secretly don't support the regime. Now, there are. There are definitely some of these people. But the thing is, Stalin has no way of knowing how many of them there are. 
whether they enjoy popular support or don't. He has no idea what kind of threat they are because they all live in fear of him and they won't openly express what they believe. So Stalin, motivated by the genuine presence of some number of people who are Western agents or capitalist sympathizers, purges out huge numbers of people who just have different ideas uh, or different, uh, different beliefs, but are definitely socialists, definitely within some kind of left tradition. And that leaves the state rigid. It leaves it undynamic. Right? But it comes from a motivation that is in some way grounded in reality. And I think it's important to bear in mind that it's not that Stalin is, is just a bad guy. It's that the kind of institutional structure that is created out of the Russian Revolution gives rise to this kind of thinking. To have a one-party state gives rise to this thinking that there are probably some number of people who are not loyal to the regime, but aren't telling you that who have been paid by outsiders like Britain or the United States or whatever to infiltrate the regime and cause trouble for you. There's probably some number. And it's very easy once you think there are some number of them to get paranoid and begin inflating this number, especially when you're the leader of the party, you're very visible, and you think maybe they might even be trying to kill you or hurt you. Uh, so I think that the structure of World War I led to the kind of thinking which led to the horrible, horrible mass killings under Stalin. And I don't think that if, say, some people argue that if someone different other than Stalin had taken over, it would have gone differently. This is not thinking institutionally or structurally. The kind of political apparatus that exists existed in the Soviet Union just gives rise to paranoid behavior. And there continued to be paranoid behavior after Stalin. Uh, not the same scale of purging, but continued to be lots of paranoid behavior throughout the lifespan of the Soviet Union because the kind of institutions that it has. If you look at China today with Xi Jinping's purge of, I think it was 1.5 million officials in a five-year period, uh, the cultural revolution in, in Maoist China, you still get these paranoid periods of intense purging in one-party states because they don't have a good mechanism for visibilizing and dealing with new ideas. And so they tend to be rigid and static and inflexible. Uh, hmm. Also of, of consequence, when we're talking about the 20s Soviet Union, the debate about whether to do socialism in one country or something international, right, to try to spread or export the revolution from the Soviet Union to other states. The orthodox view is that Socialism needs to occur in a state that has already gone all the way through capitalism. So it needs to occur in the advanced capitalist states. If it doesn't occur in the advanced capitalist states, those capitalist states, because they're stronger and more powerful, are going to intervene and crush the revolution if it starts in a poorer state. Now, Lenin thought maybe you can start it in Russia and quickly spread it to the core rich states like Germany or Britain or the United States. That is, is a kind of different thought, but the thing is it depends on being able to quickly export the revolution because if you don't export it quick, you're going to end up with this inferior economic block that can't compete with the capitalist block and that is constantly with a siege mentality, constantly worried about infiltrators from outside as the Soviet Union ends up worrying. The alternative approach was to try to do it in one country and to try to build a domestic economic structure which could compete with and ultimately outcompete capitalism. And that's what they end up having to do because it ends up not spreading to Germany 
ends up not being exported to Germany. And of course, that just adds to the siege mentality of the Soviet Union, because once you're doing socialism in one country and you have one economic model that's competing with the capitalist model, now your economic model has to compete with the capitalist model on its own terms, which means you end up with, as some socialists call it, state capitalism, the state directing a competitive system for the purposes of beating out in the global market the capitalist system. And that forces that state system to look in some ways a little bit too much like capitalism. Uh, in the case of the Soviet Union, you have a lot of exploitation going on. Workers certainly not seeing uh, all of their uh, hard work translate into higher living standards because so much of it is being taken by the party to use to defend the socialist bloc from the capitalist bloc. And that means, of course, funding the Soviet military, which eventually becomes a huge, massive boondoggle. And it means corruption. It means the people in the party lavishing money on themselves. And it also means uh, trying to invest that money in technology, which might enable you to outcompete the capitalists. So it means strange research projects, uh, some of which are kind of interesting, but, but premature. Uh, a lot of talk during the 70s, for instance, about cybernetics in the Eastern Bloc, the idea that you could use automation to make it easier to manage economic systems. Now, that eventually had legs to it. If you look at things like Netflix or uh, Google or some of the big computer data-driven companies, big tech companies that we have now, uh, they are using big data to figure out what people want even in systems where people don't have to pay for stuff on an individual basis. With Netflix, you just pay a fee every month, but Netflix is able to take big data on what you watch, and it's able to use that to help it decide what kinds of original series and original films to make to satisfy different parts of its audience. And it's able to do that without you buying individual movies. You don't have to buy movie tickets or buy DVDs to send some kind of signal to Netflix about what there is demand for, because Netflix is able to use computers to get that information. Uh, and it's much more reliable than, say, sending somebody around to people's houses and surveying them about what they watch, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there are some technological ways in which the system might have been made to work more easily, perhaps. But in the context of the 70s, the computers and the internet were just nowhere near good enough to support those new ideas. And so the cybernetic project proved premature. Like I think, and I hope that some people listening will agree, the whole socialist project of the early 20, 20th century, it was premature. It was constantly faced with obstacles that were very much of that period. In the case of mm. Russia, you have the obstacle of, of having a peasantry that has no internal organization leading to the militarized mm. party. In the case of the Western states, you have increasingly much more extensive civil society organizations, which are not very revolutionary in their character, regardless of what they profess. And you have uh, a breakdown because of the world wars in global trade. And that breakdown in global trade makes it possible for states to do more internal redistribution because they are not competing with other states to attract investment. 
their rich mm. people are less mobile during that interwar period, the 20s and the 30s. And that makes it possible to raise taxes. It makes it possible to do redistribution. So you know, Lenin, when he opens this whole period up by saying imperialism is, is the final stage of capitalism, uh, by borrowing from Hobson, and of course, dismissing Hobson's argument that you could do redistribution through the bourgeois state, mm. neglect, neglects the reality that the wars that made, that made it possible for the Russian Revolution to happen also made it possible to do a level of redistribution internally within the bourgeois nation state. Mm. Because they collapsed capital mobility and therefore trapped rich people in their states, forcing them to mm. pay tax because they can't get out. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, the conditions which enabled that redistribution have long since broken down in the contemporary context. Right. And that opens up questions of, well, what, what can we learn from all of this? Yeah, yeah. And I think that the lessons are kind of discomforting. Yeah. Because a lot of people look at this and they try to get nostalgic about one of these theorists or some number of these theorists, but it's very hard to imagine any of these approaches working in the contemporary context because of the different problems posed by both electoral strategies and revolutionary strategies. Yeah, yeah. and of course, thinkers like uh, Luxembourg are trying to say that we can have reform and revolution, we can have organization and spontaneity. Uh, we we can try to find a balance between these extremes, but without the uh, social conditions for such a balance, it's very hard to, uh, if not impossible, to magic such a balance out of thin air. And we were talking just before the podcast about how one difficulty that there is here is that you need some kind of balance in order to avoid these extremes. But the problem is that the market system in which we live is very dynamic and uh, dynamism tends to be an engine of imbalance. And so if we live in a system which systematically uh, produces imbalance and keeps on swinging the pendulum from one extreme to the other, then how on earth are we meant to find some kind of um, balance between these extremes. And of course, even if we get beyond the particular extremes of attempts to uh, do socialism in early capitalist conditions, in mid-capitalist conditions, there's no guarantee that late capitalist conditions avoid those extremes. Uh, the extremes being the division between workers and peasants uh, in early capitalism and the uh, excessive unity of the working class in mid-capitalist conditions. It's by no means clear that even if we avoid those two extremes, that we might not find ourselves just continuously alternating between uh, different versions of those extremes. Uh, continuously. And by excessive unity, Edmund's talking about the proliferation of the civil society organizations, which have a, an organizing, but also a pacifying effect. 
Yeah, yeah, the low economic organization of of early capitalist conditions, uh, making possible very uh, extreme levels of political organization versus the very high levels of socioeconomic organization in in mid capitalist conditions, which didn't require uh, centralized um, proletarian parties to lead some kind of revolution. Instead, they made possible uh, lots of political divisions on the left. Because there wasn't that strong incentive to form political unity, you need some kind of balance between the the socio-economic conditions um, in order to make any kind of political balance uh, possible. But the reason why a political balance is necessary is in order to overthrow the unbalanced economic conditions. So, so it is definitely a trap that we're in. Um, because uh, the things that we need in order to make balance possible are only possible if we have balance in the first place. And it's precisely because we're in this situation that we don't have balance, but it's also uh, precisely because we're in the situation that we desperately need it. Yeah, I, I want to throw out a thought here. I think that so there's all this emphasis on how capitalism rapidly changes things. And it does. And that rapid change tends to create imbalances. It tends to either create the, you know, the setting of the mid-capitalist period with the excessive uh, civil society organization, or it creates something like early capitalism where you have no organization and the traditional communities have been disrupted. And so people don't really have any alternative forms of organization. Uh, in the case of Russia, not only was there the chaos of the First World War, but a few decades before, they had made an effort uh, to eliminate serfdom, and that had destabilized traditional village communities too. So you have, on the, on the one hand, capitalism's tendency to rip apart organizations, and then also its tendency to rapidly create new forms of organization as coping yeah. mechanisms. Yeah, 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 and that yeah. swinging between periods of disembedding and reembedding, as Polanyi would would call it, uh, yeah, that that causes a lot of trouble. Polanyi, of yeah, course, I, did yeah. not anticipate the new period of disembedding, but that's yeah. what we seem to get with capitalism: rapid swinging back and forth between disembedding and reembedding, right? Yeah. Or perhaps a, a dialectic between anarchy and tyranny. Yeah, as you where know, we swing from one them, to the other, or yeah, despotism and equality, or yeah, yeah. we keep seeing that in the history of political thought. That those those swings, you know, German freedom and uh, the Kulturkampf. Uh, mm. Yeah, I think that. However, there's something in this idea of fettering, and if we if we to kind of return to the basics of Marx's theory, mm. it, when fettering is happening, fettering means that eventually the economic system gets to a point where it isn't rapidly generating growth, which means it isn't yeah. rapidly generating change. Right. Right. And if the yeah. revolution is supposed to happen when fettering is occurring, yeah. that would suggest that the revolution is supposed to happen when we are no longer having uh, very rapid change because capitalism has become an obstacle to change rather than the cause of it. So there's a temporary artificial balance there in that fettering stage, which might make possible some kind of um, balanced way out. Because you, you need some kind of balance in order to make uh, revolution possible. Otherwise, uh, because the revolution is dialectically related to uh, to capitalist conditions, it will just 
inverse those conditions. It would just be the mirror image of those conditions rather than being some kind of uh, transformation beyond those conditions. It'll just be another extreme, uh, another, uh, another reflection along the, the mirror image of, of the market. Um, but well, I think that yeah. I think that one of the things that can be helpful to think about is what does fettering really look like? Yeah, and what would a fettering situation be? It wouldn't be a situation where things were rapidly changing. It would be a situation where things had kind of locked up. And there, I can yeah. I can identify a lot of different things that I think would be symptoms of this, and some of these I see in late capitalism. No, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, right. So, yeah. F- for one, you would have a kind of vetocratic situation where politically you can't do very much because uh, right. there would be a kind of stasis. There would be a, a confusion about what to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and this term, v- by the way, vetocracy comes from f- Francis, Francis Fukuyama, Fukuyama. Yeah, who right. argued that that neoliberalism is the, the the end of history, and here he is. Um, few years later in his books on political order, arguing that, oh, well, maybe neoliberalism is producing, or at least neoliberal institutions are in a crisis, in a gridlock. Um, yeah. Which yeah may, and and may, the reason they're well in a crisis or a gridlock is that because there's, if there's a level of fettering, then it's not possible, no matter what they do, to get out of the fettering without making a more substantive transition away from capitalism. So all of the usual gimmicks that would be deployed in a period when capitalism is working normally to restore growth or restore dynamism, those things would not be working. So you would have a political frustration, especially among the liberal uh, establishment or centrist elements, to try to somehow get out, right? In the 30s, Hobson said, just redistribute the money. And there was a way that that could be done. And therefore, a level Mm. of dynamism could be restored. But here you'd be in a setting where you can't really restore dynamism uh, through ordinary liberal policymaking. And you would would need to be in a setting where the uh, lack of, you would have a, a a lack of economic change. Keynesians talk about secular stagnation, this idea that you just can't produce a sufficient amount of economic activity to continue to drive growth, right? Mm. Yeah. So you would yeah. you would have a lot of people without very much to do. Those people would would not be able to. They wouldn't be workers, but they also wouldn't be uh, soldiers. That they wouldn't have a role, so they would be a little bit kind of lumpenized. They would be yeah. kind of blo- boxed out of society and atomized and rendered lonely because they they wouldn't be able to find work or any other kind of useful organization to be part of or join, right? Because yeah, yeah, organizations yeah. have to have to operate in either they're transformational and they're trying to change things or they are part of that uh part of a, a status quo that is to some degree functional. And at, in, a, in a fettering situation, you would be getting to the end of capitalism. So you would be reaching a point where you don't really have a lot of need for employer-employee relationships. You don't have a lot of need for people to work because you've reached the end of what capitalism can do in terms of making production uh, more efficient in a, in a way which is consistent with labor relations. 
right? Mm -hmm. So you get to a point where to get to further develop the productive forces, it would be inefficient to hire large numbers of human beings to work. And so capitalist firms would just start not hiring very large numbers of human beings. You get more and more human beings just unable to find work and therefore unable to obtain the means of subsistence and the means of consumption, right? Now, maybe governments would try to prop these people up with something like a basement level Andrew Yang style um, subsistence universal basic income. But this would not enable them to really drive consumption. It would just keep them alive, right? Mm. So I, I can imagine a world after some kind of universal basic income has been created, but a low universal basic income, one that isn't very robust and doesn't really emancipate people, but just keeps them, yeah. keeps them around, where they're yeah. still not providing enough consumption to really drive anything forward. And they're very atomized, very alienated from society. You can see mm. some of this in Japan. Because what's happening in Japan is you have what, what they call the 80-50 problem, where they have these 80-year-olds who came through the old post-war system and have good pensions, and their 50-year-old children who still live at home with them, living off the pension, right? And of course, when the 80-year-old parents die, the pensions dry up, and then these 50-year-olds, they can't get work. The Japanese economy never really provided jobs for those 50-year-olds. And they've just been providing consumption, spending the pension money of the parents. But once that pension mm. money dries up, you suddenly have the, the, the large number of 50-year-olds who don't have an income, have needs. Uh, what do you do with, with those 50-year-olds? Can you get them jobs? Well, the Japanese economy doesn't produce that many jobs anymore. Yeah. One possible option becomes instituting some kind of UBI or or welfare system that replaces the role that the those pensions used to play in the lives of those 50-year-olds. Uh, because these yeah. people are going to need effectively pensions even though they've never worked. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we we may be moving toward a world where that becomes more common where we have more and more people who are just barely being kept around with very small amounts of welfare money with the government not willing to commit to giving larger amounts because of a of the old ideology that you should be working for your money, uh, causing people to really only want to support a subsistence, very, very baseline level of, of basic income. Um, so I think that we're not that far away from a world where people support some kind of basic income, but only subsistence level. Now, once uh, once that happens... There will then be questions of whether uh, to increase that, because the larger the number of people who have never worked and never really found employment, the larger the number of people who are going to feel like it's not that unusual and that there should be a way of living that's dignified that is consistent with that. Hmm. And so the question then is, will those people be able to electorally get a UBI that is bigger through the electoral process, or will they be blocked from doing that? And if they're mm. blocked from doing that, how do they respond to being blocked from doing it? Mm. But I, I think that that might be in the long term where this is going, um, because as we still have today, a lot of people who are still in some way, shape, or form 
receiving the benefits of the old post-war system. They're in some way, even though they're not working for a company that any that provides those kinds of pensions or that kind of stability or those kinds of wages, there's still a lot of people who have family members a generation or two back who did get those benefits and have to some degree been able to pass those benefits down in a rump diminished form to their children and grandchildren. And that that is, is still providing a level of cushion a level of mid-capitalist cushion for our society. And in that sense, we, we don't, you know, we talk about late capitalism, people talk about it a lot, but we don't really have, we're, we're still transitioning to that. I don't think that we fully have it. Hmm. We are still in a process of moving away from the post-war period where there's motion, there's still movement, right? But when, when it all locks up in fetters, there won't be that kind of movement. It will just settle into a kind of miserable stasis. And Japan has this. It has a kind of miserable stasis where things don't change very fast or very much. They're just consistently miserable in a similar kind of way. Yeah, yeah. It's less uh, uh, Hobsbawm's uh, age of extremes in the first half of the 20th century, but rather an age of perhaps an age of moderate extremes where the pendulum isn't exactly swinging from fascism towards liberalism, but rather the pendulum is swinging uh, among points that are potentially closer to the mean, but still don't reach the mean, which might create the appetite for the mean (laughs) and the appetite for something new. Um, And even in Japan, there's still a very large number of older people still alive because the life expectancy in Japan has gotten longer and longer. Yes. So there's still a lot of there's still a lot of people with post-war pensions living in Japan. And still a lot of younger people in some way living off of or benefiting from those pensions. And if you uh, look at say Britain, uh, if you look at uh, the wealth of the housing in Britain, it's all tied up in this post-war generation. You know, the boomers, we talk about the boomers all the time. There's all this discussion of the boomers. And some people on the left hate this generation's talk because it splits classes along generational lines. But there is some value in talking about it because of the very different economic experiences of different generations during a period Mm. in history when there's rapid change in the way that economic institutions and structures look, right? Yeah. yeah. So the effect of this is that we have a large group of uh, retired people who are still effectively post-war people who, because they had the benefits of being in these civil society organizations, uh, are still relatively uninterested in radical change. And many of them are still in civil society organizations. Most of the clubs that still exist that are still regularly attended are regularly attended by senior citizens and older people. There are a lot of these clubs that struggle to attract new members, but have a lot of older people in them. A lot of them, churches, uh, volunteer groups, a lot of different organizations of this type, both secular and religious. And as this generation fades away, initially there's going to be a transfer of wealth from that generation to its children. And that is going to, to some degree, prop up that next generation. And it's going to be a while before the post-war era fully winds down because there's still so much 
of this as as much as there's been a transfer of wealth to the rich over the last 40 or 50 years and there's been a huge transfer there's still a lot of legacy elements of the post-war system mm. that continue to prevent a fully new world from obtaining and so when yeah. we're talking about late capitalism we're really just talking about decayed decaying middle capitalism and there's a frustration mm. about decaying middle capitalism because you can see where it's going lots of people can kind of see where it's going see how it's going to be difficult but we're not there yet and we're not quite sure how fast we're going to get there so we mm. keep talking about what it's going to be like when the post-war order is gone. But we talk about it as if the post-war order were already all the way gone. And it's not yeah. all the way gone. There are still these el rump elements of it that continue to produce a level of stability, especially for the older generation, that is a huge obstacle to either an electoral or a revolutionary strategy. It's often pointed out that revolutions uh, occur predominantly in countries with young people. So if you look at, for instance, the Arab Spring revolutions, they occurred in countries with populations that average age is in the 20s, right? So revolutions require young people who can actually go out and do the revolution and large numbers of them. Uh, electoral progress in the West, I think, is, is to a large degree blocked by a post-war uh, post generation, which still gets the benefits to a large degree, although it's diminishing, still gets a lot of mm. the benefits of the old post-war system and hasn't fully been exposed to the consequences of the right-wing reforms it's been supporting for the last 40 or 50 years because it was kind of yeah. grandfathered in, right? Uh, mm. It's going to be a long time because of inheritance and the fact that there will still be transfer of a lot of this wealth to the next generation. It's going to be a long time before we fully get to what late capitalism is meant to be. We are still not really in it yet. Yeah, but the yeah. theorists, the contemporary theorists, want to talk about it like it's here because, for the same reason that theorists of early capitalism and middle capitalism wanted to talk about these periods as revolutionary moments, because to say that you're a long way from from the moment when change occurs is to say that you have to live in an in between period where not much happens, and that's kind of boring. You know, I think back to when we talk about uh, Tacitus in the Roman period and Tacitus's boredom. Tacitus, who lived during the era of the five good emperors in Rome, lived during a period of unprecedented peace and prosperity and stability. But if you read Tacitus, he hates the emperors. He hates yeah. them because they've made everything so boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he yearns for the excitement and agitation of the late Republic where there were, and the civil war rather than the stability of his own time. Right, when there was a huge amount of conflict and suffering and lots of people died. So there's, I think there's always a kind of, especially if you can see where the world is going and you think that you, you have some confidence in where it's going, there's a boredom and a frustration with having mm -hmm. to live in an in-between period, waiting for other people to catch up and to start to experience it the way you experience it and to see it the way you see it. And I think that that's always been a chronic frustration for Marxists is that because Marxists believe that they can see how society is going to develop or is going to change, they want other people to see it immediately. It's not easy to see the future without a lot of elaborate education. And that leads to the proliferation of things like reading groups, right? Reading groups are uh, 
you know, interesting and fun and useful from an educational standpoint. But a big part of the reason why they proliferate politically is this frustration with the fact that other people can't see where things are going. They can't see where things are going. And of course, you can't have a revolution if other people can't see where things are going. So it leads to all of these education movements that are trying to raise consciousness or get people to see. But the thing is, the best way to raise consciousness is to live through the period that yeah. is like this. And there isn't really a substitute for living through it. And yeah. sooner or later, you know, if we'll live through it. But it, it takes so long. It takes so long. And then you have other things happening in the background, like climate change, that make us feel like we can't afford for it to take too long. Because if it takes too long, the environmental consequences of capitalism will create a different problem yes. that sits alongside it, which is why I always like to make a distinction between the red, the red and the green left. Right. The red left is concerned with a certain with a different kind of crisis from the green left. And there are lots of people who are red green hybrid and who care about both problems. But they are different problems. The idea that capitalism will produce a situation where uh, it can't further develop because of institutional problems with capitalism as a structure is different from the view that capitalism might be institutionally fine, but it's destroying the planet. Right. If you think mm. it's destroying the planet, then theoretically, you could just come up with a scientific solution that would protect the planet from capitalism and then go on being capitalist. And many green parties are basically this way. They think that capitalism is fine, but if they can come up with some kind of technological solution uh, or environmental program, Green New Deal or something that is consistent with, uh, with that, that they can solve the green problem without having to attend to the red problem. Right, right. And of course, ideally, one would do both. The problem is that social relations are organized in such a way that the relationships among human beings are very significant in determining the relationships between human beings and the rest of the natural world. And if you don't resolve the contradictions of the relations among people, then it's going to be very hard to to resolve any uh, contradictions between uh, human beings and the rest of nature, um, because we live in an economy which is driven by uh, not uh, simply um, our biology, nor simply uh, anybody's particular ideology, but by a social system and by a set of relations among people. Uh, and it is those relations which uh, need to be addressed if anything is to be done. And I think I would just note, uh, as we come to a close, that it's quite easy uh, for uh, even on the uh, red left, on the Marxist left, to focus on one kind of relation or another to focus purely on class relations among people in different points in the economic structure um, or on the political relations of people in a state. It's very easy to reduce everything to class um, as uh, the stereotype of orthodox Marxism would have it, or to uh, reduce everything to say the relations among states, which are very important and underlooked by those who just attend to the class structure, because of course it's likelier that capitalism will transition 
um, back from its current global uh, character to a renewed territorial character than it is that capitalism will straightforwardly end. In other words, it's likelier that both due to uh, climate change and due to the geopolitical conflict unleashed by the market system, notably between the US and China, uh, that capitalism might return again from uh, globalization to re-territorialization, which means basically going back from capitalism as a global system to capitalism as a system within every nation state, um, where every nation state has a relatively distinctive capitalist economy um, competing with other nation states over territory, which at some point might return us to global capitalism. But uh, there is certainly a risk that this is the cycle we're in between global capitalism and territorial capitalism. Um, and it, it might be driven by climate change because climate change is very impatient and it's not going to wait for late capitalism and for the kinds of conditions under which socialism is likely to develop. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's worth not ignoring these class relations because if there were to be any escape route from the cycle between global and territorial capitalism, um, it, it would be through some kind of class struggle at the, uh, the transition from one to the other. So the last transition was at the end of the Second World War and the creation of the Bretton Woods system and the supposed class balance that you got among uh, the uh, Western democracies uh, after that devastating war, uh, a class balance which lasted for, uh, as the French put it, uh, 30 glorious years, um, perhaps not so glorious, uh, but <laughs> then coming to a close from the 80s onwards, though, as Benjamin notes, the legacies of that are still very much with us. Uh, the difficulty is that if the conditions are never right, then the cycle just continues. But at the same time, it's not assuming that the cycle will continue forever. No cycle continues forever, not even the capitalist cycle between uh, global markets and nation states. Uh, well, and that's why I wonder if it's not about catching it when it's in between the pendulums and trying to hold it there. It's it's that sooner sooner or later, if the fettering kicks in, if fettering is really something that can happen with capitalism, and I think that's really the central question at the root of whether Marxism is onto something interesting or it's not. It's it's is fettering something that can happen to capitalism? Because yes. if fettering can happen, then capitalism can reach a point where it no longer can solve its problems by swinging. Yeah, yeah. Th though Back I think and it's forth probably a between, mix. Yeah. between nationalism and uh, global trade, or between embedding and disembedding, or between you know, community and uh, global and global organization. That, that yeah. swinging back and forth between creating intermediating institutions and destroying them... Uh, at some point, capitalism, if it can get to a point where it can't solve its problems by creating new institutions or by destroying old institutions, if its problem goes deeper than that and becomes more fundamental than that, that's mm. when you can get something really interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's really the interesting question is, will we get to a point where 
and you would if, say, technologically, you got to a point where it just wasn't it wasn't efficient to hire people. It just didn't make sense to hire them. They're not very good at very much. Human beings mm-hmm. are not very good at very many tasks. You know, <laughs> you just get to a point where human it just doesn't make sense to hire human beings to do very much. Uh, and the employer-employee relationship, it, it, why would you have it? It's not efficient. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. If you get to a point where people start to think that way about it, then it wouldn't matter whether your economy was organized as at the national level or it was global. Either way, it would start to seem kind of stupid to continue to base things around the employer-employee relationship. And it's in that context where there are a lot of people who are suffering because we have a society based around a relationship that we no longer need. Mm. It's in that context where it would be very difficult to continue to argue for the employer-employee relationship. Now, that doesn't mean that it would obviously be the case that we would get socialism. Right, yeah. But at that point, we would have to do something different. We would have to do something in a different way. And at that moment, organization might potentially matter. Yeah. I'm not sure that, it, that it's something that you can do in between swings. But maybe if you get to a point where the swinging no longer matters, where capitalism has reached a point where swinging doesn't help it, Okay. Maybe that's the point where you can get out. Mm. Because I, I think if the swinging yeah. is, is doing something functionally for capitalism, then it will tend to also be buying legitimacy for it. Yes. Although the difficulty for capitalism is that when you're in between swings, you have conflicting legitimation stories. And that could be a moment when a third legitimation story between liberalism and nationalism can intervene. And that's the idea of socialism, that it is a, a true third way, that it is an alternative to this swinging. Um, ah, well, see, see, Edmund, this gets back to this question of whether do you really need a different kind of material situation for socialism to obtain? Or is it possible that you can make the right kind of ideological intervention at a critical moment? Right. Because that's what you would be doing if you intervene at the point when it's swinging. Yes. With a different legitimation story, that would be a cultural discursive intervention, which would be quite different Uh from the more strict interpretation, which would say, actually, this time has to be materially different from previous. Oh, no, I I mean, material. I. I, 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 this could be reframed in the in a material way because these ideological forms are just the expression of the political economic structure. Um, say, you know, at the point of the um, the point of the transition, say b- between uh, the, uh, the 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 global capitalist uh, condition and the territorial capitalist condition, that itself is a is a. <laughs> is a kind of contradiction among the relations. I guess what I want to say is that the idea of fettering is an idea of contradiction between the relations and the forces, between, in other words, uh, the state and class on the one hand and technology on the other, where the state and class don't provide enough room for technology to develop. They fetter technology. The relations, the institutional relations, fetter the material forces. But there's also another layer of contradiction here, which is the contradiction among the relations themselves. This includes the contradiction between labor and capital, between uh, bourgeoisie and proletariat, between rich and poor, um, but it also includes uh, state contradictions, contradictions among states, but also contradictions between uh, states and 
classes. Uh, and so I, I want to say that it's both of these conditions at once that every social system requires two things. It requires that the relations correspond to the forces, but it also requires that the relations cohere with one another. And of course, coherence depend on, depends on correspondence and fettering, therefore, if it destroys the conditions of correspondence, will ultimately um, end the conditions of coherence, of stability. Uh, but I, I think that there it is- It raises a, an interesting question, right? Which yeah. is, you know, if there are multiple different kinds of contradictions that capitalism creates, yeah. uh, which of these contradictions do you need to potentially get socialism and which of these might create an opportunity to do something politically, but maybe not quite socialism. Right. And I think the difficulty is that we often kind of have one or the other. And so it's often easy for capitalism to muddle its way through. Um, it's- by creating the illusion of moments where you can do something, right? Yeah. By, by having some contradictions in play, but contradictions which are still resolvable within capitalism, those yeah. contradictions often look like the the existential contradiction. Right. I suppose what I'm what I'm suggesting is that we ought to we I think we ought to place more emphasis on fettering. Oh because I agree. Because I think it's very difficult to imagine a scenario where it happens without the fettering. Oh I agree. And fettering often is the we cool have thing. Yeah. other contradictions that are in play, but without the fettering those contradictions aren't enough. You know, Lenin was right that there were contradictions in the model that was being employed in the run-up to World War I. Uh, you know, he was right about that. But those contradictions were still resolvable in a way that was consistent with capitalism because it wasn't the technological fettering. That wasn't the central issue. Mm. Although, uh, yes, no, I, I, I agree with that. But I think vice versa is true too, that even with some level of technological fettering, there is an ability of the relations to adapt without being totally transformed. It's only when the fettering is really quite severe that the relations need to be transformed. And in that sense, I'd agree that fettering is certainly a precondition for revolution, uh, but it might not be a sufficient condition for revolution because there is an ability for relations to adapt in various ways. And yeah. it's, for instance, it is possible that you could get a, a time of absolute fettering, not just the relative fettering of past epochs, but a kind of absolute fettering, which leads to the uh, transition beyond capitalism. And then we end up in something worse. There's no guarantee that you get capitalism, then you get socialism. And yes, so that's yes. why I would suggest that it's a dialectic between fettering and revolution, a dialectic between these, um, between the contradictions of capitalism and between the, uh, the ability to transform it. And these are very tightly related to each other, uh, the condition of fettering and the more general um, political and social contradictions of capitalism. But it's not possible to identify yeah. them. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll have to talk about it more later, Ed, but unfortunately, because I got to run. Oh, uh, sure. But yeah. I, hope that, I hope that we've all uh, had, had a good time with this episode. We're going to do Frankfurt School. We're going to do more discussions of this kind of stuff in the future so if you enjoyed the episode hope you'll stick with us you can yeah. support us on patreon.com slash political theory 101 all lowercase no space and uh, we hope you have a great rest of the day thanks everyone bye bye bye